is this? And when you do that, you actually cultivate together equally concentration and experiential inquiry. And so concentration, I think it's very important to see that the kind of concentration we are cultivating here is different than the one we generally do in everyday life. Because in everyday life, when somebody tells you, concentrate, generally you tense up. And generally you reduce the field of awareness. And often people tell me, I can't concentrate. And I think, you can concentrate when you're so caught up in a thought, in a feeling, in a problem. You totally concentrated on that to the exclusion of anything else. So you can concentrate. The problem is that the way you concentrate often in daily life is not very healthy, is not very helpful because it's exclusive. Everything is pushed off and you just kind of get locked in, obsessed by one thing to the exclusion of anything else in your experience. When the concentration we're cultivating here is inclusive. And the best way I would describe it is that in the foreground, you have, let's say, the concentration on the breath on the first day, or today the concentration on what is this. But this is within a wide open awareness where you have the background. So you either doing the breath or you asking the question. And, but it's within, in the background, this wide open awareness. When you hear sound, you feel sensation, you have feelings, you have thoughts, and you don't exclude anything. But by being focused, resting on the breath or really asking the question, it kind of anchors you. And this is what I kind of would recommend you check out. Notice when you come back to the, to the question, you will actually come back to everything in the moment. I noticed that once I was uh, doing a retreat in a kind of like a, a hall where the, the, the roof was very close. And it was raining very hard. And as I was trying to ask the question, what is this? I noticed that when I asked the question, I was very aware of the rain. But when I was distracted, lost in some thought or daydream, I did not hear the rain whatsoever. And that's what is interesting, that when generally we lock onto some thought, feeling, sensation, and we kind of get obsessed with it, we get lost in it, caught in it, then actually we're not aware of anything else. But when we come back to the object of focusing, like the what is this, we actually come back to everything else in that moment. So actually coming back to the question is bringing us back to the whole experience. So we're not reducing ourselves. We're not locked in just one thing. That it be a thought, a feeling, a sensation. But in a way, the, the questioning enables us, as a focusing technique, to come back, to be anchored. So to have the question in the foreground, and then everything passing through in the background. And it helps us not to get caught. 
in such a way so that we can be different with the thought. And to see that often they say the question is like an antidote to thoughts. Because in a way, when you ask a question, you're not thinking of anything else. So at that level, it works. You kind of come back to the question, what is this? And in that moment, you're here. You're not in your holidays or you're not in the past. You're right here. This person who is alive, breathing in this moment. And personally, I think concentration is very important because it's really what will help us. For example, with the mental habits. I presume after two days of meditation retreat, you might have noticed that you keep having thoughts. And as I said before, it's because you have a brain. But after two days, you might have noticed that you have a repetitive thought. Your thoughts are not very widely original. <laughs> you generally have thought them before. And you can also start to see that you have sent certain, I would say, mental groove. That you kind of find yourself in similar places again and again. I mean, one of the favorite ones when you sit in meditation is daydreaming. This is such a wonderful activity. Time passed so fast. You hear the clacker, ah, but I was in this wonderful daydream, you know. And you see, the problem with daydreaming is that it is a mono-reality. And so we kind of lost in this mono-reality where everything goes according to plan, but it has little to do with what is really going on. And so we have to be careful because often it makes us frustrated. I had this very badly. I had a very bad habit of daydreaming. When I was in Korea, I mean, I sat 10 hours a day for three months at a time. So, I mean, I had lots of opportunity to daydream. And my favorite daydream was, I am going to a hermitage. I am going to practice hard. I am going to awaken. I am going to save everybody. So I would daydream about meditating. <laughs> Until I realized that was not meditation. And I thought, uh-uh, that's not going to help. So I really had to work with seeing how the meditation daydream back to the real thing and not the imaginary thing. Another thing we do easily in meditation is ruminate. And this generally starts in the past. You suddenly you hear and you're perfectly fine here. Nothing is happening as far as I know. Nobody is doing anything to you. And suddenly you remember, three months ago, somebody said this to you. And it was so painful. How could they say this? Really? That was really not on. Really, this is horrible. Really? And they, they often do this. You know, they're really nasty, aren't they? And then you go run and run. Then you start to feel bad now because of it. And then generally you bypass the present and then you go into the future. And you sit in meditation plotting revenge. <laughs> Very compassionate. And then the next time I meet them, I am going to say that and I'll get them. 
which personally I think maybe is not the point of the meditation. And in a way to see that the past is gone. We cannot change the past. We can learn from the past, but we cannot change it. And the future, generally they never say what you th- they, they need to say for you to say something so much better. And the only thing we can cultivate is the present. To cultivate stability and openness so that when really something happens, then I can be there. I can be what I would call creatively aware. Recently I was in Korea in November to go to a conference and because I'm working, helping with a book on the Korean, the definite book on Korean Zen. (laughs) Totally definite, everything in it. And I went there and Stephen said, oh, you're going to the conference and you must say that. I thought, all right, I'll say that. (laughs) And Stephen suggested, I said, instead of calling the book Kan Wa Son, we should call it Wadu Zen because it's a little more understandable. Kanwasong means investigating the wadu zen. And so, and then everybody was upset that I said that. And then the next day somebody said to me, come, 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 you must go and meet the top guy of the order because you're going to help and say the book is fantastic. I mean, nobody told me I was going to meet the top guy. He's a top, top person of, that, of the organization. It's a huge kind of is really top in the hierarchy. And I was going to meet him. I was going to have to talk in Korean to him for about half an hour. I had to say a good thing about the book. And so it started quite nicely. You know, he was asking me this, asking me that, and I could kind of answer the Korean. That was okay. And then he said, and yesterday, I mean, it was only the afternoon before, and that was the morning. He said, yesterday, you said this to call the book Wadu Zen. (laughs) What do I do here? So I kind of creatively engage with that. But it's not something I could have prepared. I just had to kind of respond to the moment. And I think the only thing you can do to respond to the moment is actually to cultivate the meditation, to cultivate the concentration, to cultivate the experiential inquiry. Then also what we can be aware of is emotional habit. As we sit in meditation, we might time to time have what I would call like an emotional groove. We kind of know this. We've felt this before. And one of them often is fear. And the thing is that if you feel fear or if you have thought which are fearful, because generally the two go together, the emotion and the thought, Notice, because here nothing is happening. Nobody is doing anything to you. And you feel afraid. And look, generally, if you are afraid, it's fear in the future. What if this happened? What if that happened? But it's not happening now. And so I think with the meditation, when we cannot see that, and we can see what is this? this futuring fear, and to see, oh, it's not happening. I mean, it might happen in the future, but you're not there. We're not in the future. And the thing is that in abstraction, we cannot do anything creatively. 
I had a friend, he was so afraid that for 30 years he was afraid something was going to happen. And finally it happened. And he was so surprised that he could totally cope with it. Because when it happens, he can deal with it creatively, with creative awareness. But in the future, he can't do anything. Just make it bigger and bigger and bigger and exaggerate it. Instead of coming back here and doing what's the best we can do, cultivate stability and openness here, right now. Then another thing we can notice is physical habit. And one of our physical habits, which I'm sure has been a little kind of challenge in the last two days, is comfort. We love to be comfortable. You know, we kind of, I mean, everywhere people want to make us comfortable. Nice sofa, nice heating, you know. When I was in Korea, it was like in the 75, and the temple was very poor then. So we'd, we, the telephone barely worked. You had to shout. The further away the person was, you phone, the more you had to shout. So it was kind of getting a <laughs> little weird. Then electricity came and went. You often did not have it. Water came and went. Sometimes I had to climb down into the well to kind of, uh, kind of make something work so we could have water, and it was a little complicated. So it was a very kind of simplified existence. And I know for myself, when I came back after 10 years of living this kind of simple existence, and the water was hot, because in Korea you only have a shower every two weeks in those days. And, you know, I came back to the West, and you had hot water on tap, electricity working all the time, the water working all the time. And what was interesting is that within a month, if the electricity went off, I would be... Wait a minute, you know? <laughs> this should be working. It was very interesting how so easily we adapt to comfort. And so in a way, I think a, a meditation retreat often is a challenge in terms of comfort, in terms of you know, being comfortable because we have to see these hours. And so in a way, to have the courage to go a little beyond the comfort I know for myself, when I was in Korea, I would sit 10 hours a day. Not 10 hours non-stop, but like, you know, 50 minutes. You see, we're nice here. You know, now you sit only 35 or 30. In Korea, 50, 5, 0. Then you walk 10 minutes, 50. And those, I mean, you do this, you know, four times. And no free walking in the middle. <laughs> no, no, no. And so by the end of the, of the evening, like the last sitting, the tenth hour, I would sit. Often I would be in agony. It was so... Because I was not such a great sitter. And my friend would just sit for hours. I could not really do this. But it was oddly interesting experience. Because I knew it would not last. After the 50 minutes, I would go to bed. And the next morning, I would be totally fine. And so that's where I really started to experience change. That yes, in the evening it's painful, next morning it's fine, and it's not always painful in the same way. And so actually I could quite easily deal with it. And it would go a little beyond my comfort zone. And so in a way, with the concentration, what we're really doing is not feeding the habit. 
So we don't go more into the daydreaming, the ruminating, the fear, attachment to comfort. And then it, they can go back to their creative function. That daydreaming can come back to imagining. That if I want to have, cultivate imagination, I can. If I want to reflect for rumination, I can. Fear is a survival mechanism. And then I can, I can ask, is there a reason to be afraid? Should I do something or not? So we want more in the present. And with the comfort, of course, it's nice to be at ease, but not kind of be so attached to it. And so I think it's to see that the meditation is not a lobotomy of our senses, but it's actually bringing them back to their creative functioning. And then we have the choice to exercise them. And that's where the creativity, I feel, comes in. Then you have the experiential inquiry. And this is really, this can be done in different ways. But, so in the questioning, is just questioning. But it's, it's a questioning. What is interesting with the what is this, is that as you question, it actually starts to help you to not be so fixed. And if you're not so fixed, then it makes you more aware of change. It makes you more aware of conditions. And so, in a way, the, it's to see that the, the, what is is the words are not sacred. They're just kind of like a, a diving board, kind of just like a helm to cultivate the questioning. So then we have less this tendency to fix, to solidify, to limit ourselves. And also less a tendency to permanentize. Because we have such a strong tendency to think it's always like this. I have pain in the knee, it will always be like this. I am tired, it will always be like this. But what you might have experienced after two days is that actually things change. In the morning, you might feel a little brighter. Oh, yes, this is great. After lunch, <laughs> maybe I ate a little too much of that nut roast. You know, and to see, and then, you know, the, and then after the walking, one feels a little brighter, you know, and then ready to go. So to see really changes. We feel our thought, our feeling, our sensation, the sounds change. At time to time, we have this wonderful bird, tweet, 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 tweet. We think, oh, this is nice, guy house. Then you might hear, you know, some kind of cars or things. Hmm. Just to see, things change. And to just be more in tune with that. And if we're more in tune with that, with the help of the questioning or just observing the change, then we can more flow with the change. We can have less a tendency to fix things, to fix ourselves, which as soon as we fix, there is really very little opportunity for creativity. And so to really see that things come upon conditions and they disappear upon other conditions. And so I would say, in a way, the meditation is an exploration of the condition that forms us inside and outside. So it's not tomorrow, uh, next time I'll talk a little more about emptiness and various things like that, but to see that it's not to kind of end up in kind of this cosmic void, but on the contrary, 
to really know what's going on here. Myself, other, how I relate to myself, how I relate to the world. And if I can relate in a more creative way. And so I would say the concentration and the experiential inquiry helps us to develop what calm and clear awareness. And this is really big in Korea. This is the main thing in that they have about five chapters in the book on calm and clear awareness. And in Korea it's called Song Song Jok Jok. So Song Song means vivid, vivid. Jok Jok, quiet, quiet. And I had a funny experience in Korea. I was teaching, they asked me to give a talk. And, you know, I kind of talk most in English, but I would use some kind of Korean term. And then you had two Korean monks in the room with other lay people. And at the end, one of them asked, but what is this song song jok jok? And he looked Korean. He had the Korean monk clothes. And instead of thinking, where did he do his training? He never heard of that. I thought creative awareness. He is not a Korean monk. He looks like one, but he must not be one. And then I asked him, and yes, he was a Korean man, but he was a Tibetan monk. So he'd never heard of Song Song Jok Jok. Because <laughs> they have a different term. They, they have the same term, but they have a different uh, language, different vocabulary. So this Song Song Jok Jok is actually what we do here. We develop the calm, we develop the clear awareness together. And together we're going to develop creative awareness. And that we're going to take in our daily life. And so in a way what we're doing here is actually cultivating the power of creative awareness. So at one level you might feel that you're sitting here and not much happens. Because generally not much happens on retreat. You just do the job, concentration, experiential inquiry, and yeah, not much happens. But actually, something is happening, but something a little subtle. And this is developing the power of creative awareness. And to me, what was, I saw it kind of relatively quickly when I was in Korea. After I had barely been six months in Korea, and in the middle of a retreat, I am sitting in meditation. I am asking, what is this? That's all I'm doing. I'm not doing any vipassana, anything like that. I'm just asking, what is this? What is this? So I'm doing. And suddenly, I see age 22, 23, that I am totally self-centered. I've never seen this before. Because since age 10, I wanted to save the world. So I thought I was incredibly compassionate incredibly other-centered. But just through the asking, what is this? What is this? I became actually more aware of my thought. And actually, I, I realized most of my thought were about me, were about what I wanted, what I wanted to get, what I did not want to get. And, and it was all this kind of busyness about me. And I thought, oh, and you see, to me, this is what is interesting about creative awareness. It's different than what I would call 
maybe normal awareness. Because I would say our normal awareness often is hijacked by judgment and is judgmental. And so often it's like you have a police person on your shoulder who never take a holiday and say, hmm, good, bad, you're a good person, you're a bad Buddhist, bad meditator. But with the creative awareness, I did not think I was a bad person for being self-centered. I just thought it was funny. I thought, here I am, meditating, trying to be awake, trying to reach enlightenment, and you know, wanting to be compassionate, and the whole time I'm thinking about me. And I thought, hmm, there is a lot of work to do, you know, before I get there, you know. And then I realized that's what the practice was about. The practice was about, in a way, dissolving, weakening that self-centeredness. But not to get it to 0%, but to 50%. And I would say when I saw it, it was 95 And then the aim is to bring it down, bring it down to 50 so that, you know, you are self-centered, but also other-centered at the same time. So it's more balanced. And to me, what the characteristics of the creative awareness was acceptance. The fact that suddenly I saw something clearly, and seeing it so clearly, I accepted it. I realized this is so. That's, a way, that's what's going on. But then there was that movement of transformation. How can I be with this? How can I transform this? How can I work with this? In a non-judgmental way. And then that's where you kind of start to become more aware that you're not always self-centered. A lot of the time, but not always. And then you start to see that, oh yes, time to time. You're quite nice, you're kind of compassionate, you're quite wise. And at other time, not. And in that way, I had a big surprise. Just a little after that, I, I, the, the meditation retreat finishes after three months. So then you have the free season. So I, I went to the capital Seoul to do some business, something to do with the embassy. And I had to change money. So I went to the bank and I changed money. And... The guy, the teller, gave me too much money. And I thought, great! <laughs> because I, was, I used to be an anarchist. So I thought, one, against the capitalist system. <laughs> and more for me. So I go off with my loot. And then I stop. I stop. And I feel something is not right. So I stop. And creative awareness tells me, this is a bad idea. The teller is going to suffer. He's going to have to put it out of his pocket. And very likely he's not well paid. So to my surprise, I retraced my step and I gave him back the money. And to this day, every time I'm given too much money, I give it back and everybody is surprised that I don't take advantage of it. But I can't do it. And I can't do it because of the creative awareness. And I can't do it because of the compassion. So it works. The self-centeredness goes down. And the other-centeredness comes up. 
And so to see that this creative awareness is really to, to make us more aware, but in a creative way, to see our good quality, and then we can appreciate them and we can work in, on them and develop them more, but also to see our negative qualities and negative tendency and to see we are not always like this. And then to see what are the conditions that makes me more likely like that. And the condition that doesn't make me more likely like that. One interesting one is irritation. We kind of have a tendency, not everybody, to be irritated. But notice, when are you irritated? I used to get irritated and I used to look for somebody to be irritated with. So generally it was Stephen, <laughs> because he was next door. So I kind of, you know, I would feel irritated. And I would kind of go to see him and say, yes, you know. You, you know, you know. And he would look at me and say, but I did not do anything. And I would say, hmm, but I feel angry, you know. And then I thought, but why do I feel irritated? And then I would see I was so tired. I was exhausted. So after that, I went to rest. When I feel tired, I go to rest, and then I'm a much nicer person. So you know, the creative awareness makes us aware of the conditions. What is it that's going to help me? What is it that is not? And with that, we can all see compassion. Compassion is an interesting thing. Generally, we like to be compassionate. We like to be helpful. But what is the condition that stops us from being compassionate? And one of the big conditions is busyness. I am busy. Oh, I have this to do. I have that to do. And then we get this kind of monotonal vision mind. And we're totally obsessed. I am busy. I have this to do. And you see somebody who is suffering. Too bad. Maybe in two days' time, five o'clock. But, you know, I can't now. I can't now. And we kind of totally gone. And so in a way to see what is it. That is going to help me to be open to others, to see their suffering, to respond to their suffering. And then there is another thing that I think creative awareness can help us a little with. And this is what I would call the poor me spiral. And this is where we have to be careful with what is this. That when we ask what is this, we are not asking about the meaning of the universe. Because often if we go into the meaning of the universe, very quickly we find the meaninglessness of the universe. And then we get into this weird place. Nothing has meaning. My life has no meaning, etc., etc. And to, to, be, to see that what is this is not an existential question about the meaning of the universe. It is just a mean to help us to cultivate concentration and experiential inquiry within a Buddhist framework. Because often what we do is that there might be this kind of like slight negative groove. And recently I was reading a book which said that when our negative groove is in action, like we feel a little uh, irritable, unhappy, uh, seemingly, then we go on to this negative track 
And then we notice everything that is negative. So that if they did um, a scientific experiment, that if you are in that mood, you only look at the people who look negative. And you don't notice people who smile. But they say if you are in the positive track, you do the opposite. You then notice people who are happy and you see positive things. Interesting. When we go onto one track, off we go. And the other. And to see when we go on track, it doesn't mean that we cannot, you know, we have negative feeling, things happen. But to see when we go into the spiral, and I think the creative awareness can help us. For example, you're waiting for somebody. Nine o'clock, hmm, they're not here. He or she is not here. Ten past nine, he or she does not love me. Nine twenty, nobody loves me. Nine thirty, I hate the world. And we easily do this, easily do this. And once I, I had this happen, three o'clock, person not there. But creative awareness went into action, and I thought, hmm, why is not she here? So I, I phoned. Instead of going, why does she think she is? And, you know, I, have, you know, I am busy. Now. I thought, why is she not here? So I phoned her. She said, oh, I thought it was next week. Very easy explanation. No need to go into extrapolation. So in a way to see how can we help ourselves. And I'd like to finish just a little to look at creative awareness and uh, thought. This quote, a Zen quote from Winning, the sixth patriarch of Zen. For an ordinary man or woman is a Buddha and compulsions are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person while an awakened thought makes one a Buddha. So you have lots of opportunity to be Buddhas during the retreat. Also to be ordinary. Shall I repeat it? Okay. For an ordinary person is a Buddha and compulsions are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person while an awakened thought makes one a Buddha. I like this quote because basically it's saying the ordinary person and the Buddha are the same person. We're not trying to become somebody else. But we're trying to, in a way, remove the obstacle to that Buddha coming out. Also, it's saying compulsions, habits, and awakening are not different. In the level that they are the same material, they come from the same person. We can get locked into a very negative habit, or we can move into creative awareness, which will manifest wisdom and compassion. We have the two possibilities within us. And in a way, I would say the meditation helps us to move more toward being a Buddha in all moments of our life, not just in Gaia House. And so it says, a negative thought, a thought of revenge, a thought of irritation, 
I would even say a sort of hopelessness makes us an ordinary person. Well, a creatively engaged thought makes one a Buddha. And so I think, in a way, a, a retreat is an opportunity for us, I would say, to become more aware of our Buddha-like thought, that we can have quiet, calm, we can have clear, wise, compassionate thought. And to just, in a way, if we really experience it, then at that moment, we can experience being Buddha. This is what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, um, that you said what you did about daydreaming, because I've had a lovely one going on today. Um, And then in the evening, I suddenly realized, oh, it's not true, which was funny because I must have known it wasn't. But it was, I think, because of the environment here, um, it just suddenly hit me, oh, it's all invented. And I was disappointed. And I think I normally wouldn't in my daily life daydream would just be this lovely world you can slip in and out of. But it was just, it was just an interesting contrast between this lovely absorption and then this kind of chill realisation, oh, I made it love. It's very, Yeah, this is the thing, you see. I think time to time, that's why imagination is fine. I think we need to have hopes, we need to imagine things. And at the same time, when it goes into what I would call this habit of daydreaming, then often it can lead to frustration, because often you compare your situation to the daydream. But your situation is multi-perspectival. The daydream is a mono-reality. So I think it's to see... When is imagination creative, inspirational, aspirational? And when does it lead to this, oh, my life is not like that? You know, because it kind of really, and like me, I could have spent years dreaming about meditating, but I would not have been doing it. This is a problem. So it's kind of like seeing what is a middle way with that kind of, using imagination. Like in in South Africa, I was visiting a jail. We have friends teaching meditation there. And I was talking about daydreaming. And a young man was saying, when one is in jail, one has to be careful with daydreaming. You have to do it a bit to give you a little hope. But if you do it too much, then it's really hard to be there. And I think this is also, for us, it's a little the same kind of the, the difference between creative imagination and this kind of like two kind of mono-reality daydream. Yes, Darius? So my challenge today was maintaining my concentration. And while I'm focused, say I'm watching my breath, then it's fine. But there comes a moment uh, when the mind takes a leap somewhere else, whether it's daydreaming or illumination. And at that moment, that's when you, in my case at least, I'm, I'm suddenly no longer aware of what I'm doing and I'm, I'm lost in the train of thought. And is there any way to, to sense when that's coming? Because it happens almost instantaneously when you, you're suddenly somewhere else. And, and then it may take quite a while before you realize that they're gone. And this to me is actually one of the interesting things about meditation 
is to start to realize the texture of the mental habit. That generally they have a texture. And generally over time you can see more the beginning of it. You can see more the texture of it. And personally over time with the meditation, and that's the way I kind of started to kind of learn to deal with the daydreaming, for example, is to notice the way it made me feel. And generally with daydreaming, the texture was gooey. It was like kind of like, and generally it started with if I had, if I was. And so first I had to see I was in the daydream. Then I had to see how it made me feel a certain way. And that I was kind of, in a way, seduced by it. It was kind of like, I want to go there. And then the way I personally finally broke through with the daydreaming, and it took me many, many years, was when one day on a retreat, suddenly the creative awareness had enough power to say, this is it. But this is it in order to to really do it for a whole sitting of 35 minutes, I could feel the gooeyness. And I would say, no, back here. Back to the question. Back here. Back. And for 30 minutes, that's what I did. Feel it and come back. So I was not repressing it. I was just being so aware of it and not giving in. Not giving in. And what was interesting is that after that, it never happened again. And now I can't even bring it. I can't even be fired up. The gooiness is not there anymore. It's like gone. Just by that. It was, to me, it was fascinating because I thought it had so much power. And I think that's what we're doing here. We're developing the power of the awareness. So first, we, we see more the beginning. You mean all the time you were in Korea? Not all the time. One time, I did not do it for a year because I went to see a great master and I told him about my daydreaming. And then he took a stick (laughs) and then he gently tapped me on the shoulder and said, now you won't have it anymore. Lasted a year. (laughs) But then he started again. No, no, I had it for a long time because it was a very strong habit for me. Then I would say ruminating it's kind of like, more like a negative feel, kind of like. It's, it's interesting. So to me, this is where, that was, I would say, my breakthrough with all these negative patterns is to see the feel, the feel they had. Fabric. Yes, it's kind of like, it has a certain feel. The, the, the thought has a certain feel. I mean, first you kind of notice it. It kind of takes some time to notice it. You have first to see what is it. Kind of, how does it feel? What is it like? And then you have to see also the, the three levels. That the light, habitual, and intense. When it's intense, there is nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is time to time come back to the breath for a second. When it's habitual, then you can notice more the texture. And then over time, that helps you to work with it. But then what you're left with is light. And then light is kind of strange because you think you are concentrated. You think you are aware. You think you are doing the meditation and then, whoops, you have a light thought. Then you're back on the meditation and it's just a few seconds. 
It's kind of very interesting. You're kind of aware, gone, aware, gone. Very interesting. It's very light. So I think it also depends of the kind of like the, if it's light, it will go very easily. And it's kind of interesting also to see where do I go? I used to go making luggage. Then now I see luggage. No need to do that now. <laughs> Before that, it was repairing my clothes. So you kind of, you know, it changes just to see, ah, oh, that's a new one. Then I see it. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether you can say a little bit more about this uh, uh, topic of self-centeredness. Uh, because uh, certainly uh, myself and a lot of people, when we were young, if we do something we want, that is selfish. And so you could be conditioned, you know, about the word selfish, self, self-centered, without really knowing what you yourself want. Uh, personally, I'm, I, I think uh, to say uh, what I really want is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Because that could be part of your true self. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you lose yourself. You can even lose your gift, what you're supposed to be. I, I did not say zero percent. I said fifty percent. You see, when I, what, what I'm trying to point out is not. You see, personally, I would make a difference between a need and a want. That's already, and also I would make a difference between capacity we have and habits we have. This is different. And um, what I was trying to say is that if you looked, of course, you can have people who are more selfish than others. But what I found interesting in the level, because I thought I was very unselfish, you know, and I had that impression, I gave that impression, but if I looked in my mind, so I'm not, talking about if you want to paint, if you want to work with children, if you want to go on holiday. I am not really talking about that level. Because, you know, selfishness for me is when you arm other. You do something for yourself, but then you arm the other person. You do it just for yourself, but it has a negative consequence. If it has no negative consequence, I mean, yes. In a way, if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. So it's basic survival. It's basic survival mechanism to take care of ourselves, to do, to go, to find a direction in our life. What I was talking more about is that when you meditate, often if you look at your language, at the language you use, a lot of it is about me. That's why I was talking kind of maybe a, a level underneath. But in terms of, yes, kind of, looking at one's aspiration, what one wants to accomplish, of course. I think as each human being has different condition and different condition to fulfill, to manifest in different ways, which can, we can develop along our life, at all moments of our life. And that's why I think creativity is so important, to see the creative functioning of the organism and to really manifest it. Uh, yes. When you're talking about negative effect, or you're harming someone else because of selfish behaviour, 
And that just made me think of when people firstly proceed to harm me, and then I think, hold on, stop. Maybe this is not harming me. Maybe this is actually teaching me something. And then when I sometimes think I've harmed my husband, and I think, no, actually, maybe I'm teaching him something. So sometimes I find it really hard to know, am I harming him or am I not harming this is a tricky one. I'll talk more about toward the end. Because uh, the last talk I want to give is about ethics. And then I want to look at about harming. Because harming, you see, in terms of uh, Buddhism, uh, it's kind of, it's very much like the Buddha was very, I mean, it's very clear in, in Zen Buddhism too, about trying to be harmless. But again, we have to be careful that it's not 100%. You know, we try to do the least harm we can. But then we have to see, first, we, I mean, in Buddhism, you look at the intention. Do I have the intention to arm? Do I have the intention to take advantage? Do I have the intention to make a fool of the person? Then to see what is the effect on the person. Is it hurting? I mean, do they tell us that this is hurting? Also, you have to look, how do you do it? You know, because you can have uh, a discussion and a dialogue, and you can have an argument. And according to how you go, then you can go towards something constructive and both learn from each other, explaining, understanding, listening to each other, or you can fight about, you know, my truth and their truth. So personally, I would be a little careful of seeing, <coughs> you know, when there is arm, I'm learning something. I think there is a limit, you know. In some circumstances, yes. In other circumstances, maybe not. You see, I used to work for, um, when I lived in England, I used to work for a, a battered women uh, association. And there the thing is, get out, get out. You're not learning anything by being beaten up in your marriage. You know, so I think, again, it's kind of what is. Is it light, habitual, intense? Uh, what are the circumstances? What are the conditions? But I'll talk more about it toward the end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.